I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. In this next installment in the Philosophers on Medicine series, Jonathan Fuller chats with Maya Goldenberg, who teaches philosophy at the University of Guelph and has a research interest in the philosophy of medicine, bioethics, and medical epistemology. They discuss the mindset behind vaccine hesitancy and resistance that some people have around pediatric vaccines. Maya Goldenberg wrote an accompanying humanities article published in CMAJ called Vaccines, Values, and Science. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Vaccine hesitancy is a cautious or critical stance towards vaccines. By some estimates, it is on the rise among the public. Medicine and public health have responded to this state of affairs partly by communicating the evidence on vaccines to the public. But some believe that this approach ignores important aspects of the nature of medical evidence, the values of the public and public health, and the conditions needed to foster trust in our healthcare institutions. These are the kinds of topics with which philosophers interested in the social dimensions of medicine and medical science grapple. Today's consultation is with philosopher Maya Goldenberg, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Guelph. Maya Goldenberg, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're going to be talking about vaccine hesitancy. First, why don't we get an idea of what it is we're discussing? So what is vaccine hesitancy? And when did the recent growth of vaccine hesitancy among North American parents begin? Vaccine hesitancy refers to an attitude, an ambivalence or uncertainty about vaccines. It used to be that research into parental attitudes about vaccines focused on the behavior. The rejection of vaccines was what is obviously problematic for public health. But it came to be seen that the attitude is actually informative too. Very few parents full out refuse vaccines, but vaccine hesitancy, which is along a spectrum, you can be slightly uncertain or extremely unsure. Um, actually has quite a range. Um, Canadian data suggests that 25% of parents with young children are vaccine hesitant. I've seen some numbers for the U.S. that go as high as 40%. So people working in public health recognize that the attitudes are important mainly because these are people that are not necessarily deeply committed to vaccine refusal and they could be swayed in the other direction. I should add that vaccine hesitancy is not predictive of behavior. Just because you're uncertain about vaccines, that can follow with a number of behaviors. You might be hesitant, but still follow the recommended vaccine schedule. You might refuse vaccines, or you might try to get a special schedule, an alternative schedule for your vaccines. Is vaccine hesitancy on the rise in North America? There's some suggestion that it is on the rise. Vaccine refusal is sitting steady, but vaccine hesitancy, despite our best efforts, decades of public health outreach and a lot of money and time invested in this, vaccine hesitancy appears to be on a slow, steady rise in Canada and in the U.S. And when did it start to grow in prevalence in North America in its contemporary form? So there's always been vaccine refusal. Going back to mandatory smallpox vaccination, there have been people that have refused it, either on ideological grounds, they don't like the state deciding what they need to put in their bodies, or on religious grounds, some idea that they are corrupting the pure body. But contemporary vaccine hesitancy is usually thought to start with the publication by Andrew Wakefield 
and colleagues in 1998, a paper that appeared in the Lancet that first made the link between the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and autism. So that's usually where we begin the story. And what kind of a research study was that, just to give the listeners an idea? It was a small case study. It looked at 12 children whose parents believed that they'd been harmed by the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. It was just an exploratory study. It was hypothesis generating, as case studies are, but the study was misinterpreted to conclude that there was a causal link between autism and the MMR vaccine. But if you read the study, you'll see it was never established. As I understand it, the study was eventually retracted from the journal. Why was that? Wakefield was accused of ethics violations. Eventually, all but one of his co-authors decided to remove their names from authorship because they saw that the conclusions that were drawn did not really follow from the data. They'd overinterpreted the data to at least suggest a causal link, and that really wasn't there. It was later, after it was retracted, that an undercover investigation by Brian Deere, a reporter for the London Times, revealed that Wakefield had actually fabricated the data. So despite the fact that Wakefield's original study was eventually retracted and all this information about it came to light and it's been thoroughly rejected by the medical establishment, nonetheless, there is a sector of the population that still is at least suspicious of this potential link between autism and the MMR vaccine and that are hesitant about vaccines in general. So what is the primary explanation for this vaccine hesitancy according to public health authorities? What do they think is going on? Well, it's recognized now that there are a plurality of reasons that parents hesitate around vaccines. And we know this because there's been a lot of social science research into this, interviews, surveys of parents asking them about vaccine attitudes. So they come up with explanations like parents think vaccines aren't necessary. Parents say that they express broad safety concerns. Uh, they're concerned about overloading their children's immune system. There is also a preference for natural immunity and also alternative medical practices. When you see these lists, and they really do look like a laundry list when you look at the reasons why parents hesitate, there's usually a last bullet point that says parents express a distrust in the medical system, in science, and in government recommendations. So if you look at this list, most of the things parents say point to contested evidentiary claims. So they're saying things like vaccines aren't safe, even though the science says, well, vaccines actually are very safe. We've got the data to show this. So it's easy to interpret these kind of statements as poor understanding of science. And I'd say that's still the dominant framework in public health outreach and in understanding why parents hesitate, that they somehow don't understand the science. They need to be educated about it, and then that'll shift their opinion. There's good reason to think that that's actually not true. The education campaigns are actually not changing people's minds. A vaccine hesitancy is actually on the rise despite all this good effort. So it doesn't seem to be an educational problem. I actually think that the point about parents expressing distrust in the medical system and in science and in government recommendations is more central than has been appreciated until now. So it seems that the usual way of interpreting the situation is that the public, as you mentioned, has a poor understanding of science or is ignorant of the scientific literature. But you provide a different explanation for what's going on here. What is that explanation? I think vaccine hesitancy is rooted in a general distrust of scientific institutions. 
when that claim does arise, it often provokes thoughts about conspiracy theorists, people that are completely anti-establishment and can't be reasoned with. I think the distrust of scientific institutions is a lot less complete than that. I think the distrust is fueled by everyday experiences with scientific institutions, with the science that we rely on in our lives. We also need to consider how the public interacts with science. Parents making decisions about their children's vaccines can have scientific training or have none at all. But the truth is, unless you're embedded within the community of scientists that are working on vaccines and really know the literature and know the research is being done, you are taking the recommendations about vaccines largely on trust. Parents can be told the scientific consensus. They say there's these studies, doctors think this, your doctor thinks this, you know, whatever, 95% of the scientific community agrees that vaccines are safe. But it's really largely a leap of faith for you to actually accept the consensus view because you're not part of the community, because you don't know how the consensus was generated. So when there's mistrust, you may not accept the consensus view. Alternatively, the parents that do vaccinate their kids are not doing it because they have a better understanding of the science or more engagement in it. What they are doing is trusting the consensus and trusting that the institutions and the people and the methodologies and structures that are in place to create that consensus is actually working well and working in the interests of the public. That's a trust issue. That's interesting because on the face of it, it seems that one of the main reasons that we do scientific research is to provide a kind of objective basis for making policy decisions that would absolve us of the need for relying on policy experts or medical experts or experts of any kind. So in other words, we let the evidence speak for itself rather than the interests of any one particular body. Is this the kind of wrong way of thinking about the role of scientific evidence in this interplay between the public and public health? It is the wrong way of thinking about science. First of all, if anyone who thinks critically about science knows that that is a sort of idealized view of science. Evidence does not dictate our conclusions, our scientific conclusions, and it certainly doesn't dictate policy. Actually, it can't dictate policy because policy is done in the political arena. So rather than being anti-science, I'd say the public that asks whose interests are being served by the scientific consensus are actually showing a more sophisticated understanding about science because science is not value-free. What we have going on right now in the context of vaccine hesitancy is members of the public saying, we don't buy it. We don't buy that recommendations around vaccines are not infused with values and certain political interests. I think we could do better by actually coming clean about what the values are with respect to public health interests in mass vaccination. That kind of openness and honesty is actually recommended in the risk communications literature as a better way of dealing with the public around issues that have inherent risk involved. This idea of the value-free ideal used to be a popular one among some philosophers of science, and arguably it's still an underlying commitment of a lot of scientists and people who work in certain policy arenas. So what is this idea of the value-free ideal? And nowadays, in what ways do most philosophers of science think values enter into the conduct of science and the uptake of science. The value-free ideal, and it really is just an ideal, is the idea that 
evidence drives science exclusively. Even if there are some values that and, and, and biases and, and personal preferences of the scientists or the funding agencies, it might enter into the shaping of science, what gets funded, how scientific projects are designed, certain methodological choices might just be preference. The data that is then generated is supposed to be value-free. But if you think about how science is done, it can never be that. We can have rigorous data. This is not an argument against the rigors of science, but that data then needs to be interpreted. What's the meaning of the data? How significant is it? When do we have enough evidence in order to generate robust conclusions? Then when we take those conclusions and try to apply it in the policy arena, political interests, of course, are going to play in. We've got economic interests. We've got the constraints of society. We've got uh, democratic principles in play. So the science that informs policy is not value-free, and the policy that is generated from it just can't be value-free. If that's all correct, then it would seem that this strategy of simply presenting the scientific evidence and trying to communicate it in an understandable way to the public would be at least partly misplaced because there's an entire part of the picture that's not being presented to the public if the values, the interests aren't being transparently presented as a, an important component of this entire process. I absolutely agree with that. And that's what the public is actually picking up on against that idea that people who are worried about, let's say, financial conflicts of interest in science are somehow conspiracy theorists. I think they're actually capturing something very right here. There are many interests and preferences and biases, and some of them we don't actually want entering into science. And the demand is actually for a more accurate accounting of whose interests are being served. And that is a reasonable demand. It's sometimes frustrating for scientists to hear these criticisms of, let's say, industry-funded scientific research. And people on the inside will say, I might have industry funding but they don't tell me what to do. It does not compromise my work. But you have to look from the perspective of the publics. How do they know that? All they know is that there are these interests that are being served, there are agreements that are being made, and the public is not privy to that information. So of course, suspicions can arise. More transparency might actually be helpful here. You might be actually able to get to a point where the public can say, I can see how the interests of industry and the interests of patients can actually merge here and good work can come out of it. But as long as it's kept secret, and it really is kept secret, the public has no way of evaluating that. If trust is necessary in order to get the public to partake in public health campaigns like vaccine schedules, how could public health institutions earn the public's trust in the case of vaccines and in other related cases? Luckily, there is research in this through risk communications, and it's not going to sound monumental, but it's all about open dialogue and communication. So first of all, you stop the educational campaigns. They're not working. The publics are not hesitating because they don't understand. As I've said, it's true that they may not have a comprehensive understanding of vaccines. Actually, most of us don't. I don't. But what is keeping people from following the consensus view is a certain mistrust of the moral legitimacy of the consensus statement. So how you work around that is you communicate with the public often, you address 
the points of contention rather than try to tell the public what the problem is or what they should be thinking. Work being done in the communities is usually helpful. For example, getting community leaders on board because you might have people that don't necessarily trust the establishment. Maybe they don't see themselves and their interests being represented by the establishment. So find, find the community's leaders that actually do represent the interests of the community. The last suggestion, and this comes up a lot, is actually communicate about uncertainty. And there is resistance to doing this, this worry that if you admit there are things about vaccines we don't know, there are unknowns, there are uncertainties, that that's going to just fuel fear and public resistance. But actually, there have been studies on other topics that fuel public fear and outrage, that admitting to uncertainties is actually a good approach. It makes the official message seem more believable. In recent years, we've seen public trust in traditional institutions diminishing, if not dissolving. So might your account of the reasons for vaccine hesitancy perhaps shed light on these other cases where publics have challenged traditional authorities, institutions, I'm thinking particularly of the instance of climate change denial, but also other political cases like the UK referendum on Brexit or even the election of US President Donald Trump. They are certainly tied together. Vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal are symptoms of poor public trust. The sociologists call this the downfall of expertise. And, and you're right that this has been documented for decades that this has been going on. And of course, trust in expert systems are going to go up and down for a variety of reasons. But what's important here is that we need that trust in order to manage the risks that just come with living in society. It's no mistake that when Wakefield came out with that study, making a link between autism and MMR, public health and government officials were not able to manage the outcry because this was just years after the BSE or mad cow crisis. So imagine just years before government officials were telling British citizens that it was safe to eat British beef and that there was no risk to human health by eating beef from infected animals. And of course, that wasn't true. People died from it. And it was discovered later that officials had purposely misled the public about this because of fear of the British beef industry collapsing. So imagine in that context of poor public trust, reasonable poor public trust, outcome British officials to say, don't listen to this nonsense about MMR and autism. Vaccines are safe. Why should the public believe you? So, so this goes to say that just like the public needs to trust in scientific institutions in order to follow those recommendations, the scientific institutions actually need the public trust too. Public health cannot operate without a fair degree of trust by the public. So this is the problem for institutions. It's not just a problem with the publics, but a problem with scientific governance. Well, I have no hesitancy in saying that I've really enjoyed sitting down with you. So thank you. Thank you very much. This was fun. That was Jonathan Fuller, who has a doctorate degree in philosophy of medicine and is also a graduating medical student at the University of Toronto. He was speaking with Maya Goldenberg, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Guelph. For more podcasts in the Philosophers on Medicine series, Stay tuned to CMAJ Podcasts or visit Jonathan Fuller's website, philosophersonmedicine.com. To read the Humanities article by Maya Goldenberg, 
visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes, and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.